Well, over the, over the last couple of weeks, um, if you've been here, you'll know we've been just um, having a little look at 1 Peter. We've not looked at everything that he said, but we've, uh, we've just taken a few snapshots at what um, Peter says in this letter we call 1 Peter about what it means to be a Christian. We began by noticing at the beginning of uh, one, chapter 1 of 1 Peter that um, uh, he expects real Christianity to, to always be accompanied by a, an outflow of joy, of happiness. He describes an, an extraordinarily deep, resilient happiness that comes uh, uh, with, with being a Christian that does suffer, does have trials, just as the rest of the world does, but actually underneath that knows a joy which is, which is beyond those light and momentary troubles, as the Apostle Paul calls them. Last week, uh, we saw how he expects Christians to live their lives out in community. We are called to, uh, to be brothers and sisters. We are a spiritual house, living stones built together. We are the people of God. If there is no community of Christians, we said, there will be no support for us and there will be no really viable option for those who are not yet Christians to become Christians because we need to live in community. We were made to do that. vital part of what we do is both support one another here in our faith and uh, show the world what it means to live as God intended us to do. But um, uh, this week we're going to uh, look at another aspect of what uh, Peter speaks about in several places in his letter. It's not only enough to live as a new community uh, uh, um, uh, which, which lives differently communally. Each of us personally needs to be personally transformed. He expects us to be different in our personal behaviour, different in the pleasures we indulge, different in the lifestyle we lead, different in the habits that we have. Several times he speaks of that. Verse 14, we read, as obedient uh, uh, children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, he says. Or then in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. Or again in chapter 4 verse 2 he says a Christian does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires but rather for the will of God. Yet actually it's in this area it seems to me that Christians so often are barely different from the world around them. In America the situation um, is described by... Um, uh, Ron Sider in his book The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience um, he says it is scandalous because he says whether the issue is divorce materialism, sexual promiscuity racism, physical abuse in marriage neglect of a biblical uh, uh, worldview, the polling data points to widespread blatant disobedience of clear biblical moral demands on the part of people who are allegedly born again Christians. The statistics he says are devastating and then in his book he outlines those statistics. That's one of the most shocking ones is that in America evangelical Christians are, um, are more likely to divorce than the, world, than the, the culture around them. 
I, I thank God that in this country the statistics are not quite so bad but we have no reason to be complacent. We are called to live radically different new lives. If we do not, then we are, be- we are betraying the God whom we claim to serve. And ultimately we'll re- lose the right to call others to faith or even to be called Christians at all. Now let, let, let's be honest about, about it. We must be honest with ourselves. We all know we have been disappointed ourselves with our own behaviour from time to time. Sometimes we've even been shocked with our own behaviour. We are honest in our hearts. We must know that this is a fight. Peter describes it as as just that. In chapter 2 verse 11 uh, that we just looked at, he describes those sinful desires as warring against our souls. The devil is behind them. He is a murderous enemy. He knows he can destroy us if he can only harness those good, natural, healthy appetites that we have and use them for evil, distort them. And uh, Peter, throughout his letter, outlines a strategy for winning this battle. And uh, sadly, we cannot look at all of it uh, uh, this morning. We're just going to look at what he says in the first... uh, Um, uh, those few verses that we we read. Peter's strategy for um, having a healthy hunger, a healthy appetite. Most important thing that he he wants to, 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 to get us clear about is that the battle, before it is anywhere else, is in our minds. Verse 13. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace given to you, given you, and so on. We need to understand that that first of all, that every action we ever do is because in our minds we think it will make us happier. The philosopher Blaise uh, Pascal wrote, "All people seek." Happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of going to of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step except towards this object. This is the motive of every action of man, even he says, of those who hang themselves. Tomorrow morning, you may not want to go to work. If you go to work, it will not be simply because it is your duty to go, it will be because you will actually feel more uncomfortable faking an illness. Or perhaps you will make a calculation that there are greater losses that will come in your life in the longer term through not going, going to work. And other unhappy consequences. If you do not think that is the case, if you do not conclude that you will, it will somehow make you less happy, you will not go to work. 
you think a day's illegitimate absence will make you happier both now and in the long term, you will definitely stay in bed. Duty actually, in the end, does not drive us. All of our mental calculations are about what is going to make me happy. Pascal says that even a person committing suicide does that because they calculate that they will get some personal benefit from it. The, the language they use, they use indicates that they're making that calculation. They say, they say it's not worth living. They say, I'd be better off dead. They're saying to themselves, I'm so miserable now, I think this would make me happier. Or at least relieve me of the misery. Everything that we do from the beginning of our life to the end is guided by our understanding of what will make us happy. The battle then is to have a right understanding. Peter knows that. Prepare your minds for action, he says, verse 13. Actually uses a rather vivid metaphor that the King James Version uh, translates as gird up your loins, uh, the loins of your mind. The picture is of a Middle Eastern uh, person with long robes tucking those robes into their waistband in order to be able to run or perhaps to, to fight. Probably Peter wants us to have in mind the, the, the Old Testament story of Israel's flight from slavery in Egypt. On the night that they were about to, do, to be delivered, Israel was told to wait with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Those Israelites had to be nimble, they had to be alert, they had to be poised for action, ready to flee from the evil power of Pharaoh at any moment. And Peter says, our minds need to be like that. Let, let, let me tell you, the outside world knows that the battle for our uh, lives and our actions rests in our minds. I don't know whether you saw the BBC Two television series um, No Sex Please, We're Teenagers. It was about two Christian youth workers, Rachel Gardner and Dan Burke, who started an initiative called the, the Romance Academy and they challenged... Um, 12 teenagers with various sexual histories to do without sex for, for five months. And during that time, they undertook to teach these teenagers the joys of uh, a more restrained expression of their, their sexuality. And the results were startlingly positive, actually, from scepticism amongst those teenagers at the beginning to, um, um, uh, to real excitement about what had happened in their lives. They spoke about how they had grown up. They spoke about how they'd learned to respect themselves. They were asked at the end to sum up what they had learned in one word. And one of the, the most mouthy of the girls just said, Wow! So I thought I'd look at how the press handled this programme. The, the mirror was condescending. After describing the aims of the project, the reviewer said, 
I can see you rolling your eyes and then describe the characters um, disparagingly as like Little Britain. Uh, Andrew Billen in the New New Statesman was actually, frankly, outrageous. He spoke of the hilarious unlikelihood of voluntary celibate pubescence in north-west London and superciliously joked of virgins that they actually found some in Harrow. He heartlessly uh, dismissed the startling statistic that... uh, sexually transmitted diseases had risen by 40% in Harrow, I think, in the last year, using a continuously mocking tone. He dismissed the leaders of the, uh, of the group as insufferably positive Christian youth workers and tore into the teenagers themselves as complaining incomprehensibly that they'd have too much sex. There was more, cover, more positive coverage in the, in the newspapers. Interestingly, the positive reviews were either people who spoke positively about Christian influences on their lives or uh, people who were Christians themselves. But frankly, amongst a certain group of the, the liberal intelligentsia who have rejected Christianity, that programme clearly hit a nerve and they were on the warpath. They used every trick in the book, most especially humour, I notice, again and again. Picking up uh, potential double entendres in the, fi- in, in, in the filming and so on. To mock those people and to try and make sure they captured the minds of their readers. The battle is for our minds. And let me say, the world out there knows it. Peter agrees absolutely. Be self-controlled, he says. Actually, literally, that means be sober. Like It can be used just for don't get drunk. But here he means don't, don't let your mind become befuddled. Think straight. Verse 14. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Yes, you see, when we live in ignorance, we conclude that certain patterns of behaviour will make us happy. And slowly those patterns of behaviour destroy us. Peter says, think, think clearly. Use your minds. First of all, he says, think clearly as Christians about what the future holds. Did you see that in verse 13? Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Salvation is by grace, he says. No one can earn it. No one can do enough to get to heaven. God freely gives gives it to us. But it is only given to those who set their hearts on following Jesus, who set their hearts on eternity, who love God more than anything else in the world. Sixty years ago and more, a young um, uh, uh, man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ultimately died for his faith, spoke of our false belief in cheap grace. He says, as if, if God had promised to, to simply give 
um, salvation to those who, who, who just say they believe and have asked Jesus into their lives or other such fatuous statements. No, God's grace is given, says Bonhoeffer, to us freely, but it costs us everything. On the last day, it will only be those who have set their hope fully on the grace of God who will receive his grace. If any of us here thinks that um, we can dismiss the biblical demand to live new lives because we are saved by grace, let me say to you, you are deluded. It is never found in Scripture. No, says Peter, we need to think clearly about the judgment, actually, that will come to us all. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. God will judge every single person's life impartially. We fill our lives with self-justifications, but, but God sees through that. Now thank God, if God sees at the root of our, our heart, at the root of our being, that we love him, that we have a mind that longs to know him, that we have a will that longs to serve him, that we have a lowly and contrite spirit, then he will forgive all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our messing up. But we will not escape his careful assessment. And if our lives deny the claim we have, then he will see that. Actually, even for those who are heading for heaven, there is still assessment. The Bible speaks very clearly about degrees of blessing in eternity. There will be no half-saved people. There is a dividing line, absolutely, between heaven and hell, between those whose hearts have been turned to God and those who turn their hearts away from God. That dividing line is absolute. But Jesus, in a number of places, is absolutely clear as well that there are proportionate rewards, that the assessment still happens at the end. And rewards are given out. In Luke 19, in the parable of the miners, for instance, the servants are given ten cities or five cities, depending on the, uh, how well they used their lives for God. There will be no jealousy in heaven because everyone will see that what God has done has been perfect. But there will be assessment. We escape condemnation through uh, putting our faith in Christ. But we do not escape assessment. Think clearly about that, says Peter. You know, wise people in this life are prepared to forgo a little cash now to invest money in their pensions, even if that pension yield is unpredictable. Wise youngsters now are prepared to forgo um, uh, time in getting a good education for the long-term benefits that they know they will get. Wise husbands and wives are prepared to forgo the short-term thrill of an affair, of an extramarital affair, for the long-term dividends that are paid out in a faithful, loving life. 
So wise Christians must be prepared to invest their life in eternity. Wise investors will live for future heavenly reward. Like prudent spouses, we will will live in, in, in reverent fear of God's judgment. Think about it, says Peter. Get it straight in your mind. The battle is won in our minds. Think clearly as well, he says, about our our present status. Verse 17 uh, um, speaks of our status as strangers. Do you see? Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. A couple of times in the last uh, last couple of weeks we've we slipped over that word, strangers. Right at the beginning of his letter, Peter describes the Christians as strangers in the world. In chapter 2, verse 11, that, that um, second verse where he, where he calls us to Christian obedience, he urges us to, to wage war against the, the, the forces um, in our souls as aliens and strangers. Using Old Testament terminology, actually, Abraham lived in the land without owning more than a little bit of land just for, 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 to dig his own grave. He knew that one day he would inherit that land. One day he and his descendants um, would enjoy that land. But for now he was an alien and a stranger. And that is how we live, says Peter. The meek will inherit the earth, promised Jesus but not yet. For now, we don't own it. For now, the world as a whole is run by different forces. Hostile forces. We need to recognise that. It would be a fool, wouldn't it? who put all their money into a bank that they knew was about to go bankrupt? It would be a fool, wouldn't it, who invested themselves in a relationship that they knew was going to go sour? No, we don't belong here, says Peter. We need to see that clearly. We belong in God's new creation. We should be investing in the joys of eternity. We should be investing in the relationship that will last forever and ever, our relationship with God himself. Live here as strangers. Live here as aliens. Oh, to be sure, there there is a sense that while we live here in this foreign land, we we must um, engage in it and and do good things in it. Um, The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 spoke to Israel who were again in exile, away from the promised land. 
and warned them not to think that they were going to get back in the promised land tomorrow. Build houses, he says. Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. It is right and good to be deeply involved in, in this life because this is a world that God has still made and still loves. But here we are, strangers. Don't be like the rest of the world. We're desperately chasing after, after every pleasure that they can possibly get right now because, as the saying goes, you're a long time dead. Because you see, Christians know you're a long time alive. And wouldn't it be silly to waste our lives now on fripperies and find that there is judgment to come. Think clearly about our present status, says Peter. We could spend time on uh, verse... Um, uh, 50, 16, be holy because I am holy. And uh, thinking about actually the enormous excitement of uh, learning to be imitators of God who is so glorious, so beautiful that those who catch a glimpse of him in the Old Testament are, are, are completely enraptured. And yet it's to be made into the likeness of that holy God that is our calling in our daily lives, in the practical things we do. But we haven't got time for that. I want to just uh, spend a bit of time on what Peter spends quite a lot of time on. Think clearly, he says, about God's investment in us. You know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. He uses a word there, redeemed, uh, at, uh, uh, in, in verse 18. It was a word from the slave market. It was a word to describe what someone could do if they saw an Israelite who had been sold into slavery because of their debts. That person could pay their debts off and set the slave free. Well, that's what God has done in Christ, says Peter. Except that our debt is not just an amount of silver or gold. Now our sin means that the debt we owe is our very life. But Christ has paid. God has paid in Christ with his very life. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. More precious than gold or silver. This was God's plan from before the beginning of time. He was chosen before the beginning of time. 
Because God loved us so much. Because God's plan was so glorious, so great, to pay for your life with his. That is our status here as Christians here this morning. We are people for whom God was prepared to sacrifice his life. That is the investment he has made in us. Think clearly about that, says Peter. Do you really want to invest your life in anything else that may give a fleeting, uh, fleeting pleasure and, and lasting misery? Or do you want to live for the one who gave himself for you? I I could have gone through in some detail thinking about all the practical ways in which we ought to be different. It wouldn't revolve just around sex. Sex is an important battleground in our society at the moment. But what about money? What about justice? What about compassion for the poor? What about the way we use our time? Our attitudes to other people? All of those need transforming. But you see, if we haven't got the fundamentals straight in our minds, they never will be transformed. If we haven't seen clearly with the, um, the loins of our minds girded up, as Peter puts it. What the future holds, grace and judgment. What our present status is, strangers here for a while, who do not own the world as it is. Because we wait to inherit the earth. about our calling to be holy, about God's investment in us. If we have not seen seen that and it has not really shaped our lives, then our obedience such as it is will be a sham because we're still ignorant. And where ignorance thrives, those good, healthy appetites get distorted into perversity and we end up miserable. The battle is in our minds. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober, says Peter.